0: You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at ago.net
1: slash talks.
2: Good evening and welcome. Uh, My name is Kitty Scott. I'm curator of contemporary and modern art here at the AGO. It's really nice to see you all out uh, now that the weather's a little warmer, etc., Anyway, um, we're very pleased to be joined tonight by Dwayne Linklitter and Brian Youngen on the occasion of the AGO exhibition of their collaborative film Modest Livelihood from 2012. It's on view at the Signet and Gallery through June, t- through June 15th. Has there, is there anybody in the audience who hasn't seen it? Okay, good. All admitting and confessing. That's good. Um, <laughs> I'm really going to encourage you to see it uh, before it leaves the AGO because it's really a, a kind of an amazing film. I've, I think I've watched it 10 or 15, maybe 20 times now. I always enjoy it, so anyway. Uh, I should just say a little bit about how it came to the AGO. Um, I was working with Brian and Dwayne, I guess, in, in separate and different ways at the BAM Centre when I worked there before I came here. And... Um, Somehow, they'll tell probably this story a little bit, but they met each other and decided uh, they wanted to move forward and make a film. And we provided a lot of the uh, kind of basics in terms of, I guess, production, is that fair to say, Uh, for this this film and uh, just also helped them with a little bit of learning uh, that needed to happen as well. So we're really a kind of support system. And as the film uh, was being made, um, I was simultaneously working on Documenta um, and it became kind of evident that Documenta was going to be in Banff as well as Castle, Germany. And then it became evident that uh, we would have a kind of event in the gallery and that Brian was to be the ambassador for Documenta in Canada. And it all seemed that maybe we should open with this film. And so I have this great memory of the opening night of Documenta in Banff with about 250 people at the Walter Phillips Gallery for the opening to watch the film, and it was a, it was a, great, a great evening. Um, anyway, I'm just gonna continue on with my introduction. Modest livelihood is concerned with use and self-determination of native land, both its creators are indigenous artists. Jungen, internationally recognized for his sculptures, is Deniza, while Linklater, who has been working with moving image, performance, and sculpture to portray native oral histories and learning methods, is Omas Cree. Brian and Duane will speak to the project and to their recent work and we will have some time following their talk for questions from the audience. Um, I just want to say a few words about order as well. It seems that they're sort of together apart, beside each other, yet separate. Um, they're each going to talk, uh, first Brian and then Dwayne, and then we'll open, open for questions. So please join me in welcoming Brian and Dwayne. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming back. Okay.
3: Thanks, Kitty. Um, can everyone hear me? Okay. Um, so, as Kitty mentioned, uh, I think Dwayne and I are gonna talk about our backgrounds, maybe, and perhaps about how that's kind of led into our project, our film project. And it's too bad some of you haven't seen the film because I'm gonna talk a lot about the film. So. Um, but first, I want to talk about uh, Treaty Number Eight, which I am a subject to. And uh, Treaty Eight is in uh, is uh, in northern BC. Uh, hang on a minute. In uh, northern Alberta. And uh, and it was signed in 1900 with my ancestors, and it. Um, is in mainly northeastern BC, uh, east of the Continental Divide. And uh, it was signed in 1900. And um, I have done a lot of research in the last few years about Treaty 8, and both in relationship to my family and my band, uh, the Doig River First Nations, and to my own interest in um, this history. So about a year ago, I was, uh, was going to be going to Ottawa. And, uh, I decided to try to contact the um, National Archives because I wanted to see the actual document. And uh, at first, it, when I started the dialogue, I was pretty much flat out told I wasn't allowed to see it. And uh, through various departments, and both in the National Archives and Department of Indian Affairs, they. They uh, allowed me access to go to the National Archives and see the treaty and so on. But when I got there, I was told that I couldn't see the, the actual document, it was far too fragile. And nor was I allowed to see any of the artifacts that they had in their collection. But I was allowed to see the original copies of the articles. Um, so, I don't know if anyone's been to the National Archives in Gatineau, but they're in like what looks like a stadium, this big glass building, and it's very intimidating. And anyways, I was led through all the security and everything, and they uh, they you know checked my bags and sat me down at a table and brought me this document, and they told me that I could take I could take some images but I wasn't allowed to take video or wasn't allowed to take fused flash or anything. But we started looking at the uh, treaty and um, there was an earthquake. And uh, so all the staff left and they left me with the, the original copy of the articles. So this is a video I made of Treaty 8 articles. I would have been a little slower with it so people could actually read it. But anyone can read this very copy on the Department of Indian Affairs website. But I I really wanted to make some sort of video or documentation of the document to to know that it actually exists. it looks like I was a little rough with it, but I, it's just you know because I was under the gun. But um, the treaty outlines the basic provisions that were allotted to the signatories, and the treaty itself is very complicated, and it's it, it's too, far too complicated to get into any depth with uh, tonight. But I, I was interested in the things that were. Um, Uh, promised to uh, the signatures and and the things that were never delivered and in particular um, every band member in 1900 was promised 160 acres and that was never delivered and uh, about five or six years ago my band started to work with the federal government to try to settle this and so they have created something called the Treaty Land Entitlement. And it allowed the band to go around uh, Northeastern BC and select uh, areas of the Treaty 8 territory that is of some significance, either economically or culturally, to the band and to begin a process of negotiation. So I kind of, because my families involved with band politics. I decided to kind of drive around, travel around Treaty 8, to kind of find places that I thought were interesting. And a lot of Treaty 8 is oil and gas country. So it's cut up with lots of roads and cut lines. And you can see that in the film. Well, we, Dwayne and I travel on a lot of those roads in the back country. And, uh, uh, this, in Investigating this about five or six years ago, I started to make work about about a lot of this stuff and my relationship to it and also my family's relationship to it and in the use of the land. So I was interested in, at first I was interested in, in what inter- industry has done to the landscape. So I thought I would try. Try to make a radio tower because you see them everywhere up there, uh, both for industry and for the federal government, uh, like radio t- and television communication. Um, but uh, so I proposed building a radio station and a radio tower for my band, and uh, that never actually came about, but I was kind of influenced by. Like I say, the landscape and uh, I'm I'm not very tech savvy, so one of the provisions in Treaty 8 is um, every year each band member um, provided they haven't been arrested or anything is it gets to shake the hand of our CMP officer and receive $5. Because that was a lot of money in 1900, but it never increased with inflation. So now there's this kind of ceremonial thing that happens on the reserve every summer on the treaty day, and everyone receives $5. This is a pretty old photo, but I wanted to try to give some background, (laughs) they say. Uh, Oops, I didn't select. Okay, thanks, (laughs) Dwayne. All right, there we go. So some of these images are just kind of, again, more background of Treaty 8. Um, So this is my Uncle Jack. Uh, He appears in the film. He's very influential to um, a lot of the research I was doing with Treaty 8. And, uh, um, and also working with him and where he lives, um, learning about hunting since I was in my 20s, and uh, looking over working with him and the artwork he makes was very influential to the work I started making about five or six years ago. Um, on the res- on the reserve here, there's a lot of uh, uh, antlers and bones and animal parts from hunting, and it's all kind of mixed in with um, other th- stuff like car parts, and I really kind of uh, enjoyed that uh, the the kind of um, relationship between all these things, and it kind of led into um, this the sculptures I was making. Um, Sorry, these have come out of order, so I'm have to jump around here. Um, this is the image I wanted to show you about it with the radio towers. Um, this is just when I was hunting with some family and uh, you see a lot of uh, kind of debris from the oil and gas industry everywhere, including these small radio towers, which they just kind of left out in the bush and so we just use them to make shelters with or just uh, haul them out of the bush sometimes, but it's another kind of thing that influenced me into trying to create uh, my own radio tower. So now, I think these are in order, yeah. The work that I was doing um, starting about five or six years ago with uh, moose hide and deer hide started with just actually using the hide itself. and this is a piece where I just strung uh, rope light around the perimeter of the deer hide. And then I tried use doing making prints with them uh, with silver ink uh, after cutting up drum, drum circles to make these drums out of uh, uh, shells of like modern furniture. So a lot of these are actually functional drums, but I think, especially with my earlier work, when I was dealing with um, what I would call um, the collective or like the the idea of native art in relationship to popular culture and mass media. These things really weren't meant to be touched, like the, the Nike masks I made were Ever meant to be worn, they're mainly had a relationship with a, with the museum, I guess, or, and how people interact with native art or see native art in that context. So I think my work has started to change and move away from that. so these again, these works are uh, taken from, from directly from Moosehide. These are prints that I made. Monoprints, I just uh, lay, put layers of silver ink and uh, walked on top of these hides onto this black black um, foam. These are, more, these are these more drums. I kind of looked at these as like um, um, constellations almost or like um, uh, universes or something. They had, they definitely had some sort of, I guess, celestial feeling for me. They don't sound too bad either, the drums. That's the first thing my family asks actually. So some of these were shown a couple years ago upstairs at the, in the Henry Moore Galleries uh, for the Gershon Iskowitz Prize. And it was, um, it was interesting when I was making this work and then I was awarded the prize. And I was brought out here to look at the museum and prospective uh, galleries to exhibit in. And I really liked the Henry Moore Gallery and I thought there was a um, similar kind of formal relationship to form and material, but I also liked that a lot of this work was coming from a very personal place for me, which, again, was quite new in my work, and uh, I liked that relationship because I think Henry Moore also had a very tight relationship to his family, and, and I think that was a, it was a nice pairing. I used a lot of freezers. Uh, for this work. I mainly, li- I mainly like them because they're so common where I grew up, uh, especially well, I just in rural Canada, I think, but they made the perfect plinth, like uh, this just ready-made plinth that a lot of my family, they just have these outside, and uh, I started to just make arrangements with things from like Jack's yard and like put them on top of these freezers and take photos of them. Some of the drums don't work at all, but uh, I like the way they look. Yeah, sorry about this. I'm kind of jumping all over the place. I, I wanted to, these are more images of Treaty Eight territory. Um, I spend a lot of time in in the back country in the Rockies, especially in the summer. And I I was um, thinking of buying properties in the, in um, northeastern BC, um, kind of similar to what Gordon matta Clark did and in New York City in the 70s when he bought really cheap lots at auctions. I was trying to find similar things because, I, I don't know if folks here have driven on the Alaska Highway, but there's a lot of abandoned gas stations and motels and stuff because back in the day, cars can only get so far without refueling. But now it's different, so there's fewer gas stations needed. and. A lot of these places are for sale and then they're, they're in an v- incredibly beautiful location. So I thought it would be interesting to try to buy some of these and do um, permanent public artwork projects on them um, because they fall into Treaty 8 territory and because they're along the side of the highway, they would be less vulnerable to vandalism, which is something you also you see in the oil and gas country. and and maybe you've also heard about the bomber and stuff, and the, the people who are trying to bomb uh, pipeline uh, installations in the northeastern BC. Um, so the the lineup there is fraught with politics, and I thought it would be interesting to try to use some of these sites that were at one point really important, but kind of no longer are. And uh, one of these sites is this house that I, that my friend of mine showed me. This house was built, was started in 1980, and it was never finished. Um, this, from what I know, this fellow bought this farmland, uh, he was from down south, and he wanted to build a solar uh, self-contained house in, in the north, which is pretty remarkable. but also in oil and gas country. And he never finished it, he ran out of money, but what what he did finish is pretty remarkable. It's uh, on the banks of the Peace River and it's it was, initially it was, um, like I say, it was going to be a solar powered, solar heated house with a swimming pool in it. Um, and, uh, it had this incredible kind of industrial feeling to it for a, for a house, and I was trying to uh, purchase or rent this place to use as a as a art installation or for art projects. Unfortunately, last year some folks burnt it down. Um, so. I don't know, it's, I'm still interested in doing some sort of public art project up there to do with Treaty Number 8 and uh, I have been working loosely with my band about doing something. Unfortunately, a lot of that money will be coming, if the, my band does get involved, will be coming from the oil and gas industry themselves. So it's very, it's a very kind of complicated process, Um, but it's, I think, kind of moving more toward what my, where where my work is heading. I'd never made a film before, um, before I started working with Duane. That's kind of Duane's territory, but I was, um, I was really taken with the, with the project and it's been a long time since I've had to kind of think about images and organize images because I predomin- predominantly work uh, three-dimensionally. So I kind of f- have approached the band about making another film or something when one of the ideas was to make a film about this house and uh, and the guy that made it, and why he didn't finish, and uh, that's not going to happen now. But I think one of the, also one of the influences I think for, for myself, and I think for Duane as well, was the f- films of Andrei Tarkovsky. And uh, I was thinking recently about the film The Stalker, and this idea of this industrial wasteland that's a kind of a forbidden, territory, and I thought it would be interesting to try to make some sort of film or video around that because um, where I'm from, this part of BC, is kind of becoming that territory. There's a, there's a dam that the BC government is intending to build on the, uh, the third dam on the Peace River. Um and uh I think it's going to happen but um so last year I drove around in the in the valley that's going to be flooded and uh when I'm when I go up north sometimes I just fly up there and I borrow friends and family's vehicles so that that's what I did this time and I wanted to go down and document the, what's going to be a reservoir, or hopefully not, but likely. And I was boring different families' vehicles and I noticed that one thing that is another very common thing is that everybody's windshield is cracked and because of the the terrain up there. So I made a series of these short videos which, again, I'm not very comfortable with video, so I haven't even really shown this, but I'll show you just a little clip of a video I made of this valley that's going to be flooded, where I tried to to find places in the landscape that m- matched up with the cracks in the windshield, because I felt like the cracks would just be kind of replaced, but the, the landscape won't ever be. And that's all I got.
1: So that means... Um I'm going to talk, <laughs> it means my it's my turn. So bear with me while I um, do this part.
3: Dwayne shouldn't have any problems with the <laughs> technology. I'll
1: probably just have problems talking <laughs> instead. Um, OK, so here we go. Where are we here? So I, I, I put some slides together. Um, to talk about uh, the film and to talk about um, some of my thinking um, concerning collaboration and how um, that sort of thing, the idea of collaboration is uh, contextualized by uh, what is at the heart of our our film, which is, uh, of course, uh, the idea of Treaty and treaty making. Um, so, a little bit about myself. I'm uh, a Muskego Cree. Uh, did you know that, that Cree is not actually a Cree word, but yet we call ourselves Cree people? Um, Cree is actually a, a shortened version of Christino uh, in French, right? Uh, meaning Christian. So, I no offense to anybody here, but I'm not Christian, but I'm Cree. Um, so meanings change and shift, uh, and the, the meanings of the words change. Um, but really, we, uh, but the first part of what what I call myself is the same, and I think we've been calling ourselves that for a really long time. Omskago uh, means um, it just describes the where I'm from. It describes the land where I'm from, and and uh, uh, what it looks like, what it does. Um, it describes so much about uh, the land. I, I never liked uh, or was comfortable with when that word is translated when you say, uh, I'm swampy Cree. I never, I never felt really comfortable with that, you know, swampy Cree. I like uh, Omaskego Cree. Uh, Omaskego doesn't mean uh, swampy. But yet, yet again, it was translated that way, right? Um, but I think that that word actually shifted, or or it has an English use as well. eh? muskeg, right? We all understand the word muskeg, and so that word actually comes from Cree. Uh, muskeg was the, that that's that's the origin of muskeg. Um, so, anyways, I'm off on a tangent here. Um, so again, um, so I put some, some slides together to talk about uh, my interest in, in working with people and, and how I think about, um, uh, or what it is that I think about when I'm doing that. Uh, this is a work called, it's, uh, it's a video work. It's six minutes, six and a half minutes long. I did it in 2010. Um, it's called, It's Hard to Get in My System. Uh, which is a, a, a word that, uh, or a phrase that, that uh, the cellist Zoe Wallace on the left hand side there um, kept saying to me as I, I shared a, uh, a powwow song t- with her uh, to, to learn. Um, she kept saying, It's hard to get in my system um, because there was no sheet music, there was only a sort of repetition of me singing over and over again and uh, to, to um, uh, show her this, uh, maybe, uh, different uh, pedagogy. Um, again, this, this, is, this is an important work for, for a couple of reasons. Um, I did this work at the BAM Center in 2010. Uh, I was at a residency there with um, uh, Ken Lum. And I bought a Ken Lum book today, by the way. Um, the the the, uh, the the name of the residency was called Masterclass; semicolon, art as object, object as art. I thought it was a great title, so I was really I really wanted to go, and I, I had a, a, an excellent time there. Um, and that's where I met Zoe, um, and that's where I, I, I simply proposed to her. Um, you know, I actually caught her; um, she's a part of a string quartet, and um, I thought it was sort of magical and, and amazing and beautiful, and um, so I asked her. I said, Can, "Would you like to have coffee and, and chat about, um, you know, this, what it is that you do? I'm really interested um, in, in what you do." And she agreed. And then I, I proposed to her at this little meeting. Um, would you mind if uh, I, you know, I have this idea for an artwork? Would you mind if? Um, Uh, you know, if we sat in front of the camera and I I can show you this song, and she agreed, she was very um, apprehensive uh, to do the whole thing, and and I actually thought she wouldn't show up, but she showed up, and and, uh, I thought it was this sort of really um, amazing experience in terms of being able to communicate something, and being able to translate something, and um, being able to work with somebody. So that's me talking with my hands. So again, this idea of working with uh, somebody who um, may or may not be um, uh, an artist or or a musician or somebody else. And it was around this time, 2010, that I met Brian. Um, So it all sort of happened um, very, uh, what is the word? Um, uh, serendipitously, I think the word is that I was looking for. Um, so I was thinking about these things. I was thinking about collaboration. I was thinking about working with people, and, and I met Brian and um, at the BEMP Center in, in 2010. And, it, it, and this, you know, it, it the meeting, our meeting, our, uh, was was very. Um, how can you say, informal, it was just, you know, we had coffee and we started talking a lot about um, you know where it is that we grew up. He grew up in northeastern BC, I grew up in northeastern Ontario, uh, and a lot of sort of uh, similarities um, uh, presented themselves in, in terms of how we grew up and um, the, the sort of role and um, um, importance of hunting um, was certainly something that we connected on. Uh, like I said, I grew up in Treaty 9 territory, um, which is uh, the height of land. Uh, the The Treaty 9 southern boundary follows the height of land, so the height of land is approximately from here, uh, probably, I would say, um, north of Kirkland Lake, so that's about 600 kilometers north of here. Um, so I grew up in Treaty 9 territory, and some of my first sort of, uh, you know, proximities or or... Uh, exposure to to uh, uh, contemporary and modern art, art in general, um, was through these the series of prints that my mother had in my house. So she had Norval Morisot, she had Benjamin Chichi, uh, she had Daphne Ojig. Um, she had these prints in my house and, and um, she put them up. And I always remembered her, you know, Having these prints, and and so they 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 had they played a sort of very important role in sort of my reflection uh, when when I first was sort of thinking about um, thinking about art, and so this piece Tautology uh, this was the 2011 um, sh- show I did in North Bay Ontario at a place called Whitewater Gallery. Uh, it's a small artist-run center there. Um, I had this idea that I could probably Um, or proposition or an idea to uh, um, perhaps collaborate somehow with Norval Morisot. How would this be possible? I thought that this was a possible thing to do. Because I had long admired his work and when I moved to Toronto uh, in 1996 um, I took my first art classes at the University of Toronto um, and with with a, a person uh, named Susan Shell, who, who some of you might be familiar with. Um, and it was actually um, some of my first artworks that were presented in that class were actually paintings of birds. So 20 years later, is that, that how long? 20 years later, I'm still doing the same thing. I'm making bird images. Um, but it's important to note that um, these are um, copies um, of each other, but not, not only are they copies of each other, but um, they are um, copies from a painting by Norval Morso called Androgyny. Uh, this painting was uh, a huge uh, masterwork, which was at the Rideau Hall, uh, hung in the Rideau Hall. Um, ballroom for for many years up until the summer of 2012 so I noticed this painting you know because of course a lot of events happen in this place um, um, you know the the uh, governor general gives out his awards this sort of thing and I thought well what a what a interesting slippery place to have this kind of a painting um, in front of all of these um, 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 ceremonial ritualistic sort of, Uh, Canadian acts. So I I thought it was a very um, interesting thing, problematic thing, but nevertheless very interesting. So uh, I did this project in 2011. Um, I traveled to Cape Spear, Newfoundland, um, which is about 45 minutes from St. John's. Um, this is the furthest east point in um, in North America so I wanted to go there to be the first to uh, the first to uh, see the sunrise on that particular day. that was the goal of the project but this this is a, f- a video still the video that I did that morning that cold depressing morning um, but while I was there I had an opportunity to uh, research, and, and my my research sort of was sparked mainly by my experience at the Rooms, which is the Provincial Gallery in uh, St. John's, Newfoundland, and and, uh, and seeing um, these sort of fragments uh, of Beotek culture in, in Newfoundland. It gave uh, a lot of this work, this video, and the research a sort of a very different feeling in terms of Um, in terms of what it might have meant or what it means. So in my research, I found this the story of this lovely uh, um, old lady, her name is Santu Tony, the the anthropologist Frank Speck um, encountered her in 1910 um, and she told Frank Speck, "I'm, I'm Beotuk and so she remembered songs and words and um, she remembered culture, and history, and narrative. And she remembered a song which was recorded by Frank Speck on a uh, wax cylinder machine. So, it was again, the research had led me to this particular thing, um, which is the song it's that, that Santu Tony sang into this machine. Um, and so I took this piece of information this this piece of history, and I gave it to a cellist to perform at a exhibition. It was very short, it was only about three and a half minutes long again sent to Tony when she sang uh, the song uh, to Frank Speck um, she told Frank Speck that um I don't know what this song is for anymore. I can't remember uh, the context or the meaning of this particular song. But yet it it still has a, uh, for me, uh, I think the openness uh, of the song remains really important. And so it was at this exhibition that I also presented um, another artwork. Uh, which is on the left, and on that table right there. Um, So on the table is a um, series of printed out emails. And the emails are between myself and the artist, Joanna Malinowska, who is based in New York City. Um, So it was was actually at the Banff Centre in the summer of 2012, where I went into the library. The library is really great there. Um, I went into the library, they had a catalog of the Whitney Biennial for 2012, and I was slipping through it because I was really curious what was going on over there. And I was slipping through it, and I noticed uh, a letter from Leonard Peltier and some other works, and I was really um, curious about the whole thing. And then I looked into it some more and uh, found out that an artist had Quote smuggled in a painting of his into the show. Um, well, he was aware of this as well. The painting was purchased and then put into the exhibition, and so I, well, I thought, well, that's that's interesting and problematic, and I want to know more about it. So I uh, found the artist in New York City uh, through her commercial gallery and contacted her. Um, and so the emails is a correspondence between her and I, uh, basically ask, me asking her, why did you do this? I'm going to have some water. <coughs> Excuse me. coughing a lot. So the work on the left is actually a, uh, this is the work that she sent me, I asked her for installation shots of her work in the Whitney Biennial and this is it. The email was labelled LP project plus TV project. Um, So what I did was I printed that out uh, as an artwork of my own uh, and presented that in the show. And I presented the emails as well. So the content of the emails actually in the whole uh, relationship that Joanna and I, I don't even know if it's called a relationship, but there was definitely a potential for uh, collaboration there, and collaboration was proposed uh, somewhere in the email, somewhere within the duration of this sort of exchange um, to, to which uh, I responded to her a set of, probably upon uh, a retrospection, uh, a, a set of unreasonable uh, stipulations. I said, if you want to collaborate with me, then you must meet these these um, this set of, uh, of, of uh, stipulations that I'm giving you, which were actually not that unreasonable. Maybe they were, I don't know. One of them, which was very simple, was if uh, we, we can come up on some kind of title for the exhibition, but my name has to be first. So it has to be Dwayne Linklater and Joanna Malinowska, not the other way around and then we can des- decide on a particular kind of title for this exhibition. Um, she decided that she didn't want to meet any of these um, stipulations and rejected them and uh, told me not to use any of the work, in, um, including the emails and the, the JPEGs and any of the information in any artworks, um, to which I proceeded to do anyways. Um, and she the relationship uh, and the potential for collaboration fell apart. So it was a bit of a failure, but the, the relationship sort of picked up the later, uh, the spring following. It was, um, it was strange. I never uh, actually met her um, in real life. Um, our only sort of exchanges were um, um, through email. There was no Skype. There was no... Um, there was no Skype. There was no phone calls. Um, she did email me. It was very strange. And I'll tell you this story. I was celebrating my daughter's 13th birthday. I have a daughter. She's 14 now. Um, I was celebrating my daughter's 13th birthday. It was kind of a big deal, you know. Um, and I get an email. Uh, I check it on my phone, and it says... Um, it says in the email, I'm allowing myself, from Joanna Malinowska to Dwayne Linklater, I'm allowing myself on my birthday to email you and to let you know that um, I think we should begin talking again. So this is a uh, project called um, Untitled, a parenthesis, a blueberry garden for Bard College. Uh, this was a part of my thesis project for Bard College in 2012. I planted 12 blueberry bushes uh, on a lawn outside of the Hessel Museum and the Center for Curatorial Studies at Bard College. Sort of an opportunity for um, the curatorial students or a proposition to the curatorial students and to the institution itself to take care of the artwork or to eat the artwork. So I had to work with uh, Randy Clum, the building and grounds manager of, of Bard College. Um, he didn't like what was happening, so he had a suggestion that I would put these yellow ropes around the artwork. So I did. And so the The people in charge of the Center for Curatorial Curatorial Studies had a sense of humor about this, I think. Uh, They asked me to redo the project at Family Business Gallery uh, in New York City. And they gave me seven curators to work with. This had none. This has seven. Look at this tiny space. Um, And so it's really important for me to talk about Um, It's really important for me to talk about raspberries and blueberries. Um, I don't think the the choice of the berry was an arbitrary choice. Um, It's very important to talk about them uh, within the context of Cree language and Cree culture and um, the thinking of Cree. Um, uh, Of course, uh, uh, which um, the the, uh, thinking that happens when uh, you're speaking Cree or thinking in Cree is that Rather than everything, object, people, and things are sort of gendered, female, male, Uh, in Cree, that doesn't exist. Um, Everything is either animate or inanimate. Um, Tables, chairs, people, shoes, socks, hair, everything is either animate or inanimate. The language uh, organizes itself in that way. and So of course, there are some berries that are inanimate, and there are some berries that are animate. So raspberries and blueberries are important to sort of talk about in that way um, and propose this sort of idea that these are animate beings um, and the language um, uh, reflects that change in thinking around uh, this particular object as being alive. So uh, you would say, um, I eat him or her rather than I eat it. Um, so, an- another sort of collaborative exchange happened as a part of this project. That's my friend Will, uh, Will Heinrich. Uh, he was in the writing program at BARD MFA, and we became very good friends, and we would have very long conversations about language. So, I invited him to collaborate with me at the opening, and we discussed uh, the berries and their animacies, and uh, we also discussed the um, Something that we were both very interested in, which is sort of uh, nomenclature and how places and uh, the names of places change. So we discussed. He was born and raised in New York City, uh, which I, which I was always really curious about. You know, I asked him, "How did you grow up here?" So there's some people. That's me writing on a chalkboard while well, people listened. We talked for over an hour. It was. It was um, I thought it was really nice. We talked about New York City and all the different sort of names it, it uh, underwent. And, and we thought it was very interesting that the original sort of name of the place, Manhattan, didn't change. But maybe the meaning is lost of, of what the original indigenous people um, um, thought it was. And so it, it retained that name, but of course, New York was not always New York. It was New Orange or Angoulême or uh, New Amsterdam before that. And so a lot of this work that I'm showing and talking about um, is for me um, contextualized and, and sort of modeled after. Um, what happened in, in um, treaty making here in Canada namely the numbered treaties so'm I'm, I'm from treaty number nine um, in Northern Ontario it's a it's a vast vast area um, covering much of northern uh, northern northern Ontario people say here in Toronto Northern Ontario is like Perry Sound um, I'm not sure how I feel about that. So this is the document, um, the document which the, the um, my ancestors and perhaps some of your ancestors signed as well. Um, they brought this document to each community for their leadership to sign. Uh, and their leaderships uh, of the community signed this agreement. But I, the way that I sort of think about, many of us sort of think about treaties um, is that it doesn't only exist as this paper document, it doesn't exist only as paper and ink, but rather it exists as a sort of set of ideas which are embodied in people, um, which I like to think that are embodied in myself. and because this treaty has sort of, perhaps, boundaries that are attached to it, Um, that this idea that the treaty is actually about the body, um, and the body being in space, that the boundaries of that are quite fluid. Um, And I think this very much relates to modest livelihood in many ways because I became a sort of guest of treaty, treaty Number 8. I didn't seek out any permissions from British Columbia. I didn't seek out permissions from that kind of authority. Um, I didn't want to. Um, what I sought out was the, uh, and, uh, and felt uh, strongly about, was Brian's invitation. Um, and actually Brian's permission uh, for me to be in his land, uh, in Jack's land, I think that for me was
3: um,
1: something that was really important to me as a person of Treaty 9. These were the medals that were given to the signatories of Treaty 9 on the left side is the chief's brooch and on the right-hand side is the councillors, they changed quite a bit. I'm doing some research on these, some of the earlier treaties, the earlier numbered treaties in the West, Um, the medals looked quite different than this and from what my research tells me, the material was quite different. So, here's a map of Ontario. So, here is Treaty 9. There's the southern boundary. It's massive. Um, Brian, in um, Treaty 8 and the film and my experience uh, of the f- of being there uh, and seeing um, a lot of beautiful places and meeting a lot of beautiful people. Um, but I, I encountered a lot of, um, what would you call, um, things left over by industry. And there was a story that his uh, uncle told me. I said, I said, Jack, there's a whole bunch of moose tracks by that. Uh, what are those things again? Compressor station. Compressor station, and he's like, "Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's totally normal." I said, "Well, why do they why do they go there?" And he said, "They go there to lick the 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 metal because it's salty. They like they do that naturally, right? But now they've done it, or they do it." Um, where these compressor stations are, and so I, 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 you know, encountered a lot of these things, and it happens, of course, in, in Treaty Nine as well that there's a lot of this activity that's taken place. But, uh, namely forestry and uh, up the Atwepskut River, which is about here, there is something that I'm very interested in, um, which is the De Beers diamond mine. So. This is where a lot of diamonds are sourced from in um, what they're calling uh, conflict-free diamonds. And I thought, well, well, that's a very interesting term for something that has um, a lot of conflict around it. And so just south of there, right in this little area here, is a thing called... Um, what was given the name by, by uh, industry people, the Ring of Fire, which is one of the lar- largest um, chrome deposits, chromite deposits in the world. And so many companies and forms of government, provincial government, federal government, are scrambling to go there. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm terribly worried. Um, I get really worried about these sorts of things. Uh, when I see in Treaty 8 um, the effects of the tar sands that it's had for people downriver uh, in Fort Chipewyan territory, um, there are sudden cases of very rare cancers in, those, in the people of those communities. Um, this sort of thing worries me because, of course, they see in the environmental assessments that Don't worry about it. It'll be fine. I'm worried about it. So this is the the medals that I was talking about. I think they're really beautiful. But for some reason it went from this and earlier treaties. These were given out at Treaty 6 and Treaty 7. I'm not sure about Treaty 8. They were? They were Treaty 8, and for some reason it went from this to this. I think that reflects some change in the thinking of the people that came to make the treaties with us. Because certainly we had a set of ideas that were in place when we came into those agreements, when we came into wanting to make or collaborate with someone else to um, perhaps make a society. So I think that's interesting. I think I'll end there. Thanks.
4: have for questions. I've got a microphone, so if anyone has a question just wave at me and I will bring a mic to you. Also, if you have questions for each other or Kitty, just let me know.
2: Hi, I'm just wondering if you can tell us a little bit about how you decided to kind of structure the film, uh, how you did you, did you feel you were creating a sense of narrative? What, what were the things that you were thinking about when you actually put that work together? Because it is, ultimately came from a series of things that you shot over time, and at a certain point you had to figure out how are we going to do this. So if you could talk a little bit about that process, I'd be really interested.
3: Well, maybe I'll give Duane a little break from talking and field this one. Um, well, as Duane mentioned, we met at the BAMP Center in 2010 and Duane and I both come from the northern parts of the provinces and we have a relationship to our family and hunting that we were talking about and we thought it would be interesting to go on our own hunting trip because a lot of hunting is about a dialogue and talking and waiting. And we kind of thought it would be fun to document our version of that because we mainly talk about art and music and contemporary culture, which we don't have that opportunity when we go hunting with our families. So we, initially it was going to be quite a kind of a casual thing. And it was going to be more about a dialogue. Um, So I decided to drive out to Ontario uh, that summer and visit Duane and Treaty Nine. And we would just go out with our video cameras and test, i guess do a test um, but we found that with video um, it was too immediate, and we just kept look reviewing the footage and looking at it and we completely kind of that became more important than actually going out and tracking animals, so it was uh, and plus, it was kind of late in the season anyway, so we we were we didn't really uh, time it very well. But anyways, it was a really good research opportunity because we realized that if we were going to do this, we we're going to have to do it uh, a bit more professionally. And I think that's when we kind of, the BAM Center stepped in and we uh, decided to work with film and have a filmmaker. Um, and Duane was at Bard, and he met a fellow in the film department who we decided to work with, and uh, and that way we could just focus on going hunting and not worry about the camera, which kind of turned out as you see. Um, but we also, we also didn't know what we were going to be getting because we were decided to work with with real film, so it was. A bit of a gamble, but that's, is that all right? Accurate? (laughs) Uh,
1: um, I guess in terms of uh, how it was put together, it was quite interesting in terms of uh, um, all of the the film, there was nine hours of footage in total, so there was about ten days five days of two different trips, so nine hours plus in in total. Uh, All of that film was transferred to digital um, and put on two hard drives, um, two uh, copies. So one was sent to Brian in Vancouver and one was sent to me in in Ontario. Um, And so we just decided that we're going to view all of the material, of course, separately. and so we did that. It took a little while, but uh, we we reviewed all of the material separately, and, and I remember having a, a telephone discussion. We, uh, at the end of this, uh, maybe six weeks later or something like that, it took a long time, um, I remember calling him and just sort of wanting to talk to him about, um, about the footage and what we were seeing and how we were feeling about it, and I remember um, um, thinking that during the um, viewing of all of that footage, the hours and hours and hours of footage, that I thought, well, maybe this should be silent. You know, maybe there shouldn't be... Uh, the sound was captured during the film, but we th- I thought, well... And then I remember calling Brian that time and saying, I think you know, the film should be silent. And he came to the same conclusion on his own as well.
3: Can either of you explain the title of the film and how it relates to the Supreme Court ruling?
1: How it relates? Well, the original uh, Supreme Court Martial ruling was the the uh, moderate livelihood. I thought that this was a very interesting idea. Um, I thought it was a very interesting um, choice of words. Um, buried within this, this ruling. Um, Of course, it, it, uh, I thought it was very interesting that it placed a sort of a, a a ceiling on First Nations people in terms of um, the amount of wealth one First Nations person can accumulate. Um, I thought it was a very, very interesting thing to, um, to do for the state to do. Um, whereas, of course, uh, within this sort of system of capitalism, wealth can be indefinitely accumulated by anybody. But, for First Nations, there has to be some kind of ceiling, some kind of limitation placed on the amount of wealth that one First Nations can a person can produce in relation to that person's, uh, in relation to the land and the resources that are actually ours. So I, I thought that this was obviously really su- super problematic, right? Moderate livelihood. So Brian and I thought that, that this is an interesting term for us and for the film. Um, but we thought, well, Know about moderate. I think it was actually Brian that proposed um, the word modest. That shift from from moderate to modest, I think, is important.
5: Um, I just uh, hello, Brian. Um, you mentioned about the Alaska Highway. You were talking about. Uh, a, I've done the highway a few times, and one thing that really stands out is the, the built legacy of the American military from constructing the highway. and I'm just curious if that's, you know, part of a history that interests you when you're out looking for possibly acquiring places or looking for built structures to work with, because there's a phenomenal number of Quonset huts that still mm-hmm. pop up and down.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, my elders talk about. Um, they remember, uh, they were children, but they remember when, it, the, when the, the soldiers were there, because it was the first time most of them saw black people. And they talk about um, the amount of waste, I think, that they saw, because that highway was built in two years or something, so there was a, all this manpower and all these resources Um, pushed through there and then if things got stuck or whatever and they just couldn't get them out, they just abandoned them and I think that's kind of where that started, that sense of uh, uh, large-scale industrial uh, infrastructure but also this sense of um, waste, I guess. So there are things that have been kind of reused, like a lot of those Quonset huts were sold and they're like, people, a lot of farmers have them in their farms now and stuff, and, but I think, for me, it, um, my interest was um, these kind of, I guess, uh, post-war use of the highway and, and these uh, businesses that kind of sprang up for a tourist, tourist industry, um, which most of them don't exist anymore. But some of them are in incredibly beautiful places, and that's something like you wouldn't see in the Southern Rockies at all, because the highways there are much more traveled. Um, But up in the Alaska Highway, there's a place called Steamboat, which is a really nice uh, in the in the in the front country, just outside of Fort Nelson, on top of a a big foothill. It was incredible views, but um I thought it would be uh, like a really fascinating place to have some sort of art center or, um, but it is it would be difficult because there is a lot of vandalism up there still and uh it's just it's it's sparsely populated but,
0: Hi. Um, Thank you so much for the talk and also for sharing um, your developing research and then some of the information. It's it's really interesting. Um, I have two questions. Uh, One is, Brian, you mentioned a lot about um, public monuments or public sculptures. Yeah, And one thing I was wondering is, um, considering the distance to these spaces that you are thinking of working for public sculptures, like what kind of public you were thinking about, but also how would these sculptures be received, you know, outside of people who can arrive there? Would it be, and this is, I I don't know if Mm -hmm. this is relevant, but would it be kind of brought to us through, those who can't go there or don't go there, would it be through images, or would it be kind of exclusive to people who see it in person? I don't, I don't know. Seems like a space is quite strategic, and the term public sculpture is quite strategic too, obviously, and then I have, um, I'm sorry I have to trivialize our conversation to art, criticism and (laughs) reviews. Um, And I'm open to being wrong about this or corrected. Um, One thing, like I lived in Vancouver for five years and now I live here. Um, One thing I've noticed with First Nations work is the, um, the discrepancy between like the rumor of the reception of the work versus the way that reviews work in relation to First Nations artists. And I'm gonna make this properly sit so I don't <laughs> eat my words later, um, in the sense that there's a lack of engagement in criticism. And I find that equally, as, like I find that incredibly racist, <laughs> um, that the magazines kind of don't touch the work and it tends to come out as like um, catalogue essays more than negative criticism, which I think is equally as enriching for an artist to receive those things as it would be for a positive criticism or, you know, positive feedback. I'm bringing this up because recently Emily Jassir spoke here um, and her Hugo Boss Award was over criticized because it was a Zionist agenda to undermine this kind of very Palestinian rights work. And it was interesting where criticism worked against her as a strategy. Hmm. And I was wondering how you guys feel about the way Canadian Art Review engages with your work is that is that clear I'm gonna
1: <laughs> yeah I think so um, that that that's something that I'm uh, extremely interested in uh, just personally and something that I'd like to uh, address publicly uh, I, I agree with you that there's a there is a um, distinct lack of critique uh, especially in regards to first nations uh, um, Artists and their artworks. Um, there's, you know, I've, I've speculated on, on as to why, and I think that where I'm at with the thinking of this is uh, right now is that, of course, there's there's a greater, just in general, I think there's always a, a certain amount of risk that's involved in criticism, uh, whether it's from uh, a white writer to Uh, a white contemporary artist, there's always a certain amount of risk that's involved. But now I think when uh, the risk is now conflated or something now, because um, there's a certain political kind of dynamic that's involved now, because if it's a white writer writing about a First Nations artist, um, the risk is already there perhaps, but also I think the risk is, is conflated because of this sort of historical relationship that has happened in Canada. So now there's a risk and now there's also an added risk that this particular writer or critic might be seen as racist. And I think that um, there's a problem in that. I think that to me, uh, for me, uh, um, the, the component of of criticality in, in in contemporary art is a necessary component. It has to be there, and if it's not there, then why? I, I'm I'm terribly interested in, I'm terribly interested in, in that, and, and I want to uh, address this because it's nice to know that other people are noticing that there. It just is not there.
0: And I think there's a kind of a othering of first, you know, like the First Nations art, as though like, even though we're dealing with visual language that presumably is kind of universal if the work travels from France to here and from here to Dubai or whatever, but somehow even people who live in Canada are othering the works of First Nations artists into a visual language that they won't touch. I don't know, it's like
3: a... I think there may be a dialogue of, of criticality in forums like this or in communities, maybe in like Vancouver, Edmonton, Winnipeg, but it's very small and it doesn't ever really reach a print media. Um, So, I I do think it exists to some extent. I'm not a critic, I don't write, so, but I, I have heard of opinions, let's say, um, so, I know that there needs to be a, a forum or a place for this, and I'm, I don't. As I've displayed, I'm not that tech savvy, so I don't. I don't really read blogs or things are kind of brought to me. I'm too busy and out in the bush to really pay attention <laughs> most of the time, but. Can I ask your other question? Um, I'm fairly new to public art, so I did my first piece at the BAMP Center, um, but I've been approached by my chief and council over the years to do something on the reserve. And that was where the Radio Tower project came in, because um, I thought it would be good for to the, for the tower to act as a sculpture, because it wouldn't be just an ordinary tower, it would be made of the same materials, but it wouldn't look like a normal tower. But it would be a way for the reserve to broadcast what's going on there and the culture to the wider non-native community. So it was a way that the the tower would act as a artwork that was public in its broadcast range. Um, but I I do think a lot about publics because I kinda have one foot in the contemporary art world and the other one in northern BC. So and uh there's um some of the elders and some of the folks that I go into the backcountry with have shown me very old um uh what are called De Chins. They're like uh markers um for navigation and for ceremony that aren't being really rebuilt anymore, and um, so I've been asked to kind of rebuild some of these, or, or organize folks to rebuild these, and I was thinking kind of exactly what you said, is like, is that a public artwork? Because it's very far from most people, but there people will encounter it, but it may be like 300 kilometers from the highway. <laughs> So maybe you're just given a set of instructions and you have to go find it. Or maybe it's along the side of the Alaska Highway where it's more public. And and the Alaska Highway is fairly international. So um, that's kind of where I was getting at. That's kind of where I was leaning on actually making public work is along the highway.
5: Something that uh, came up in both of your presentations, to an extent, is you know remoteness and you know sort of isolated places. And you were just speaking about it now, Brian. Uh, but I was thinking, you know, particularly uh, as uh, Duane, you recounted uh, your practice and how um, how you've you know, sought out places that, uh, like the easternmost point in the continent, to uh, to kind of you know it it then involves the entire of North America or uh, the uh, the Morris painting and. Uh, Rito Hall, sort of inversing, uh, kind of uh, you know what you would think is sort of like a, a focal point of uh, you know, sort of nationalism, and and you know it occurs to me that you know where you're from, you know, is in fact one of the the very oldest settled. European uh, outposts uh, in arriving in North America, and that uh, it has this really, you know, pre-almost pre-national sort of uh, place of trade, and, uh, and I'm just curious what. Uh, having been uh, growing up in Moose Factory uh, meant to you that way in terms of history and a sense of, uh, you know, your own sense of domain and...
1: Sure. Um, yeah, it, that, that, that's an important thing. Uh, um, people arrived, Europeans arrived in James Bay. Uh, in and around 1640 Um, it's almost 400 years it's a long time Um, I've given a lot of thought about those 400 years um, in in different ways Um, but I think for now um, it's interesting to me um, and the irony is not lost there but um that it's been that long, but at the same time, um, um, it was one accessible, it, it was once accessible uh, a certain way, uh, James Bay, uh, which was by uh, water and ships. Um, and now the sort of main modes of accessibility uh, in, in the north uh, is roads. Um, Paved roads, non-paved roads for vehicles. Uh, right now, as it stands, um, there's no paved road to um, to James Bay on the Ontario side. Uh, and it's remained that way for, for quite a long time, up until uh, a few winters ago. This past winter, um, I went home. Um, It was at the beginning, uh, at the end of February, at the beginning of March. And we have uh, now in our community um, something called Wheatum Road. And so Wheatum Road is uh, uh, the ice road that makes uh, Moose Factory uh, accessible by land uh, via via vehicle uh, in the winter, because the muskeg, uh, the swamp, uh, freezes. And so, we, uh, the community has made a road. Um, so, I, I went, I used this road to go home um, because I was asked to be there for a community event. Uh, and that was the first time I've ever driven to Moose Factory. The other methods of going to Moose Factory are flying or you drive to Cochrane and you get on a train and the train takes you to Moosonee. And then from Moosinie, you get on a boat, and then you go to Moose Factory, because the Moose Factory is an island, right? Um, so this was the only time that I've driven to um, Moose Factory from where I live. Uh, and I've been reflecting on that experience over the past month and a half. I think it was, uh, I, met, I was just recently in London, Ontario, and I met a young uh, man, his name was... Uh, um, uh, Quinn Smallboy, he was a fourth-year uh, BFA student at, uh, um, um, at, at Western. And I said, uh, he's a community member, he's from his factory as well. And I said to him, I said, yeah, I went home uh, and I used the road. And we had this discussion about how some of our community members are um, um, in support of this road, and some of the community members are not in support of this road. I think the idea of accessibility of places is really interesting. In some ways it's protected us. It's protected our culture. It just makes it really hard to get there. Um, For both sides of the bay, uh, the Quebec and the Ontario side, um, to which I have family members on both, uh, there's one thing that's very strong uh, about James Bay and uh, the people of James Bay, is that we, for even though the contact has been 400 years, that we have a very strong hunting culture, and we have a very strong language. I think a lot of that is is due to the fact that there are no roads there. It, it's hard to get there. But, as I said earlier, um, there are diamonds, there's chromite, there's things in the ground that people want, and... Um, From what I hear, that needs to come out, that needs to be be accessible by industry. And who's to say how they're going to do it? They never built this a road before, they'll probably build one now. They're saying there's 5,000 jobs, they're saying there's billions and billions and billions of, of minerals in that ground. I think they'll probably build infrastructure now, that they want something. (laughs) I
4: think we have time for one more question. Hello. My question is, I think,
0: short. I was just wondering if... uh, being from Treaty 8 and from Treaty 9, from East and West Coast, being both Cree, in today's society, if what the differences are between the two um, communities, if there's a lot of difference, and if the language is the same? Because you've both ex- experienced each other's communities.
3: Well, I know for Treaty 8, Treaty 8 um, is like the size of France and Germany, probably, put together. So it encompasses a, a quite a vast group of different people, different native folks, um, and uh, Cree, there's Cree people out there. So um, the Cree came westward um, before the treaty, and uh, they encountered the Dené, which is my ancestors, um, Dene'za, and they. They battled they didn't they fought over the land and uh, its resources, and they decided to settle call a truce, a treaty if you will, at peace River so that is uh, why it's called the Peace River so the Cree kind of stayed to the east and south and done to the north and west so that's one example of it like, I guess a pre-contact relation between two groups in Treaty 8, but that's just one example. There's, um, these histories happened before the treaties were made, so, um, it's kind of like, uh, um, some some people were just the um had just moved into the area and kind of fought their way in and then suddenly they were part of a treaty. But they really hadn't spent as long as time there as, say, another group of of folks. So the, the treaties are full of of things like that. Um because the 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 government at the time didn't really have any interest in just like all the particular divisions within the native groups at the time. So, yeah. between eight and nine, the Cree still speak the same language? They still have to be the same language? That's a different group of Cree folks. I think it's, um, what, is it Alberta Cree? It's well, uh, the, the uh, Cree
1: folks uh, generally. Uh, uh, goes from east to west in uh, the east coast of James Bay in Quebec and then it heads west from there. So uh, most of northern Ontario, most of northern um, northern Manitoba, northern Saskatchewan, uh, northern Alberta and parts of... Uh, there's one, one, tra- uh, one band in uh, that part of uh, northeastern British Columbia. So we, we, we span a huge... Uh, geographical area, just as Cree people Uh, and within that area, um, there are actually just around James Bay, um, Quebec and Ontario side, there are three dialects of Cree Um, and so there's Moose Cree which is where my community, uh, most people speak Moose Cree, if you go further north it's N dialect Cree, you keep going west it's still N up until Saskatchewan, um, where people begin to start to speak another dialect, uh, Y dialect, what they call Plains Cree. You go north, they start speaking Th dialect. Um, so the further west you go, um, they'll speak a little bit differently. But I think uh, um, it's still still Cree language. Yeah, it, it's such a huge. Uh, um, area, geographical area, not only, uh, I think the language reflects those changes in geography. I think when Cree folks uh, live on the plains, for example, the language is going to be different than for us that live in, uh, on the Moose River system. I think it reflects sort of, uh, the connections to a particular kind of a place and a particular kind of land, and how that experience is uh, lived different animals, different trees, different kind of grass, different kind of everything, from, you know, northern Ontario to central Al- Alberta, for example, flat and you know, a lot of willow. To northern Ontario, northeastern Ontario, a lot of rivers, a lot of lakes, a lot of water. So I think that the language reflects those sorts of nuances.
4: Thanks to both of you. And as Kitty mentioned in her introduction, the film continues at the AGO through June 15th. So if you haven't had a chance to see it, or if you haven't had a chance to see it 10 or 20 times, um, there's still plenty of time to do that and I hope you'll take advantage and Brian and Duane thank you so much for this insight into your work and uh, what you've been up to it's much appreciated thank you thanks good night
0: thank you for listening to this Art Gallery of Ontario podcast for additional recordings as well as information on upcoming programming and events please visit us online at agionet slash talks